you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me uh, in your Bibles to Psalm 13. Before we read, I invite you to join me as we ask for the Spirit's anointing on His Word. Let's pray together. Lord God, as we come to Your Word this morning, I pray that You would fill us with Your Holy Spirit. I pray, O Lord, that You give us hearts that would receive the words of Psalm 13. That you would draw us deeper, O Lord, into a deeper faith and a deeper trust. So I pray, O Lord, that your word would come alive in our hearts, in our minds, in our ears as we listen this morning. As we come together under the authority of your word, speak to us by the power of your spirit in such a way, O Lord, that it would bear fruit of abundant and transforming change. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word this morning from Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. You may be seated. It was a, a beautiful sunny day in Colorado, and Scott and Cindy uh, decided it was a perfect day to take their two kids, Mark and Amy, on a family picnic and a hike in the mountains. Uh, Mark was nine. And Amy was seven, and, and uh, hiking in the mountains was one of the few things that they all enjoyed doing together as a family, and so they decided to, to do that, to fill a, a picnic basket with food and, and to get their gear together, to load it up into the family Jeep and, and head out to one of their favorite trails in Rocky Mountain National Park. And so when they had all their stuff together and had the picnic uh, all laid out. They, they had their food and had a, a good lunch together. And when they were finished, uh, Mark decided to save just a corner of his sandwich. And he brought it with him on the hike. And, and he decided to, to leave it at a, at a bend in the trail to kind of see what, you know, what kind of uh, animals it would attract, a chipmunk or a squirrel or something like that. And so he left it there in the trail and then they continued on their hike. And taking in all the, the, beauty, uh, the beautiful sights and the sounds and praising God for the beauties of his creation. And after a while, they, after they had walked about as far as little Amy's legs could, could carry her, uh, they decided it was probably time to turn around and head back to the Jeep and head back home. And so they did. And as they made their way back, uh, Mark was thinking about that piece of sandwich that he had left on that trail, wondering what kind of critter might have been lured to the free food. 
And so when Mark saw that bend in the trail, and when that bend came into view, he sprinted on ahead of uh, his parents and, and to go check, check out what he might find. And of course, Amy, as the younger sister, always wanted to, to keep up with her brother, uh, ran uh, along with him and, and just shortly behind him. And as Amy rounded the corner of that trail, Scott and Cindy heard a scream so loud and so terrifying that they would never forget it. And they ran ahead to see what was wrong, and they rounded the corner just in, si in time to see Mark's legs being dragged into the woods. And they ran into the woods uh, to try to uh, save him, but it was too late. He had been attacked and killed by a mountain lion. And in that moment, everything came crashing down, and their whole world changed. What began as a fun family outing had turned into this unthinkable tragedy. This uh, was a, a true story that was told by my pastoral care professor when I was in seminary, I think my first year of seminary back in 2003. Scott and Cindy were good, very close friends of his in a very godly uh, family. And the story stands as a vivid reminder that the world in which we live is broken. That this is a world in which bad things happen and God's people are not immune to the pain. And of course, we, we all have our own stories, don't we? Not, not the same stories as, as Scott and Cindy's, but we all have our own stories of, of pain and, and disappointment and grief. Uh, some of us are living in those stories even now. Grieving the loss of a loved one. Wrestling with strained relationships. Dealing with an unwanted or an unknown diagnosis. Bearing the burden of deep depression or lingering doubts. And the question that I want to explore with you this morning is, is how do we talk to God in times like that? How do we talk to God in seasons of distress and pain? Or to put it another way, in the play, now that it's uh, playoffs, we hear a lot about players playing through pain. You've got to get to the end, and so you just push through. You play through, play through pain. Well, how do we pray through pain? And I believe that Psalm 13 gives an answer to that question. Uh, Psalm 13 provides a model of how to talk to God in seasons of distress or how to pray through pain. The psalm is divided into three sections, and these three sections mark progressive stages of prayer in times of distress. So the first stage is the stage of lament. In theological terms, lament is a form of prayer that expresses deep sorrow or complaint. To lament is to authentically give voice to the pain and the disappointment that you feel before the God in whom you trust. So lament is not just a, a vague or a general sentiment of complaint, because we can complain about all kinds of things, right? We can complain about the weather, we can complain about bad roads, or we complain about bad service at restaurants, or we complain about bad internet connections, or we complain about a, a, a bad uh, loss of our favorite team in the playoffs, whatever that team might be. But none of that is lament. It's all legitimate complaint, but it's not lament. Lament is complaint that has specifically to do with God. 
Lament presupposes a relationship with God. It is pleading with God to act in accordance with his character and his promises to us. Lament, as one writer said, is the wailing of the heart that comes when your experience doesn't line up with what you expect from God. And this is what we see from the psalmist in verses 1 and 2. He cries out in bitter complaint and disappointment, and he brings his, his pain and his disillusionment authentically before God. And so he says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Four times he repeats that, that question, how long? And it's a question of anguish, a question of longing, a question of disappointment. I think that one of the tragic losses in Christian worship today is the language of lament. We have somehow come to the mistaken notion that, that this, this kind of language of complaint is a sign of weak or deficient faith. We're, we're told to rejoice in suffering, like James says, but not to lament like so many of the Psalms do. What we fail to realize is that rejoicing and lamenting are not mutually exclusive, that rejoicing often comes at the far side of lamenting. And we do more harm than good when we call fellow believers to rejoicing without allowing them space for lamenting. And if ever we, we begin to think that such language of lament is an indication of deficient faith, we need only to remember the words of Jesus from the cross. Because in his moment of, of deep anguish and suffering, he did not cry out in language of rejoicing, did he? He cried out in language of lament. He gave voice to his suffering through the lament of Psalm 22 when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Lament is the language of suffering. It gives voice to those who believe that God is good and just, but whose suffering seems out of line with that goodness and justice. It was out of his suffering that Job cried out in lament to God, and he said, I loathe my very life, therefore I will give free rein to my complaint and speak out in the bitterness of my soul. And then he went on and on, chapter after chapter, pushing the language of lament to the outer edges of bitterness, bordering almost on the edge of blasphemy. Lament is a deeply theological act because it's not just that you are in distress. It's that you feel forgotten by God in the midst of your distress. And so you feel like he's not showing up. You, you feel like he's not helping you in your time of anguish and need. Like when you need him the most, he's just not there. When the prophet Jeremiah looked upon the rubble and the remains of the city of Jerusalem... After God allowed it to be conquered by Babylon, he too felt forsaken by God. And he wrote a whole book about it, a whole book of laments. And he said, in the middle of that book, God has walled me in so that I cannot escape. And he's weighed me down with chains. And even when I call out or cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has barred my way with blocks of stone. He's made my paths crooked. And we see this same sentiment of God forsakenness in Psalm 13. The psalmist says, will you forget me forever? 
How long will you hide your face from me? And, and to, to hide your face or to have God hide his face from you means that his favor is not on you. His face is a symbol of his presence. So it, so it feels like he is not there, like his presence has just vanished. How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? The psalmist feels forgotten by God. He feels hidden from God's favor. And the sorrow that torments him is relentless. It doesn't ever go away, and God has not shown up to help. And maybe, maybe that's where you find yourself this morning. Maybe you or someone you know is in a season of distress or, or disappointment or sorrow. Maybe you feel forgotten by God and forsaken. Maybe you know that internal anguish that the psalmist is talking about, that internal anguish of, of wrestling with your thoughts, that, that going back and forth and back and forth about, uh, about this in, internal inside anguish and that relentless sorrow that just doesn't ever seem to lift. Maybe you feel like the psalmist did that the enemy is triumphing over you. Whether it's the enemy of fear and despair or the enemy of disillusionment and doubt or the enemy of darkness and depression or the enemy of death and disease or a hundred other enemies. They're all enemies that stem ultimately from our great adversary, the devil, and sometimes it feels like he is triumphing over us. And if that's where you find yourself this morning and you don't really know how to pray, then follow the pattern of Psalm 13 and begin with lament. Bring your disappointment and bring your sorrow authentically to God. Cry out to him in complaint and be assured that, that by doing so, it's not a sign of deficient faith. It is the heart cry of those who expect much from the God on whom all of their hopes hang. And better before God is the cry of complaint than the false praise of pretense or the silence of indifference. As we continue on in Psalm 13, we see that the first stage of lament in verses 1 and 2 gives way to the second stage of petition in verses 3 and 4. The psalmist says, Look on me and answer, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death and my enemy will say I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. In petition, we bring before God our, our needs and our requests. We, we name the specific ways in which we want him to act on our behalf. And often because these are, these, these are born out of deep distress and, and anguish and sorrow, our petitions are nothing more than these sort of little outbursts and, and, and groans and pleas for help. And that's the sense of the petitions in Psalm 13. It's a, it's a little bit disguised in the English translation, but in Hebrew it comes through more clearly because in Hebrew, verse 3 begins with these two very abrupt and brief and consecutive imperatives. It reads just like this. It says, look, answer. And sometimes that's all that we can do is just to cry out to God with these little outbursts and cries for help. I remember a, uh, a number of years ago, I was uh, working out in our basement, and I was, I was doing the bench press, and uh, I was doing my typical, I did my typical number of, of reps, and then I was feeling pretty good that day, so I thought I would try to get one more. 
And if you've lifted weights, you know how that goes. And you think, yeah, I, I got this. And, and I got about halfway through, and I realized I had just made a big mistake. I did not have this, and I could not go any farther. And I didn't have a spotter. I was alone in the basement, and I didn't have those safety mechanisms on the bench. To, and so all the weight came back down onto my chest. And uh, in that moment, it was one of those moments of just uh, urgency and desperation because I didn't have the strength to lift it off. And so there I was, stuck on the bench, alone in the basement with 250 pounds on my chest. And uh, I did the only thing that I could think to do in that moment. I knew that Lori was upstairs somewhere. I could hear her singing or humming or something. And so I, I did the best that I could do to yell for help. But if you know what it's like to try to yell for help when you have a whole bunch of weight on your chest, you cannot do it very well. And the best that I could do was just these, these sort of little, little yelps. You know, I tried to lift the bar a little bit and then call, and it, was, it sounded more like, like, help, help, help. And that's, that's all that I could do again and again as Lori's humming and singing up in the basement. And uh, it probably sounded more like a cricket than me uh, crying for help. But eventually, she heard my pathetic little pleas for help, and she came down into the basement. I don't know how she did it, but she helped me get that 250 pounds off my chest and back onto the bench or onto the, the rack. And sometimes, that's all that we can do in our prayers of petition. In our desperation and urgency, weighed down with despair, we can only cry out to God in, the, in these little outbursts or simple cries for help. We don't even sometimes know what to say. In fact, as Paul says in Romans 8, sometimes we are so weak, we don't even know what we ought to pray for. But he says in those moments, the Spirit intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. When you find yourself in a season of distress or in that valley of disappointment and sorrow, bring your bitterness before God with prayers of petition. Cry out to him. Come to him. Bring before him your, your bitterness and your gall as the prophet Jeremiah did. Express to him your anger and your disappointment as Job did. And we learn from the book of Job that God can handle our complaint. Right? I mean, it's amazing that, that as, as, uh, as far to the edge of blasphemy that Job goes in his complaint before God, in the end, Job, uh, God says to Job that your friends who gave these beautifully sound theological expositions, and God yet says, your friends have not spoken to me what is right, but my servant Job has. God can handle our complaint. I mean, he also put Job in his place, and he overwhelmed him with his sovereignty. But God has no problem with us bringing our complaints authentically before him. So approach God with your specific needs and requests, even if they're nothing more than little outbursts and groans. In prayers of petition, we appeal to God's character as one who is abounding in love and compassion. Like a little child with a skinned knee who cries out for his mom or his dad to come and comfort them, we cry out to God in petition, expecting him to bring comfort and help because we have this deep and abiding and firm conviction that God is loving and good. Which brings us then to stage three. So lament gives way to petition, and petition gives way to trust. The psalmist says in verses 5 and 6, But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. 
in the midst of his anguish and despair and underneath all of the, the bitterness and the sorrow, the psalmist finds this, this deep and abiding sense of hope and joy because he trusts in God's unfailing love. And that expression, unfailing love, is that Hebrew word that we have seen so many times before. It's that word chesed. That word that is the word that best describes God's character in dealing with his covenant people. It is who God is in relationship with his covenant people. And it, it brings together that one Hebrew word, brings together all kinds of, of aspects of God's character, his love and his loyalty, his kindness and his mercy, his steadfastness, his unyielding devotion to the good of his people. When we are in the throes of sorrow or the valleys of disappointment or the storms of suffering, the only thing that can stop us from descending into sort of this death spiral of despair is a deep trust in the character of God. We trust in his unfailing love. We've seen how he's been good to us in the past and we have this firm and unwavering conviction that even now he's working through all things for our good. And so we can say with the psalmist that I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise even in this moment of anguish and despair for he has been good to me. As one commentator put it for the psalmist, faith has climbed out of the lowest depths of despair where it had well nigh perished into the full sunlight of godly hope it can wait for the help to come, for it is sure that it will not fail him. That's one of the striking things about this psalm, and really all the psalms of lament, is that this expression of trust comes in the midst of the anguish. So his, he's, uh, says this, this trust, this expression, the saying that I will sing of the Lord's, the Lord's praise, uh, comes even though the help and the deliverance has not yet come. But that's what trust does. It remembers the character of God. It invigorates our confident expectation that God is loving and good, and that he has promised to never leave us or forsake us. And so when lament takes us to the very bottom of our rope, as it did for the psalmist, and we feel like we're barely hanging on, that we're at the very brink of despair, we find that we cannot let go, because we know the God in whom we trust. And we cannot forget his unfailing love. It's uh, striking to me that over a third of the Psalms, uh, well over a third of the Psalms, are Psalms of lament. And they all follow the same typical pattern, a pattern that, that ends in trust. Because this is the goal and the purpose of biblical lament. It leads to that, that faith-filled renewal of what we know to be true. Even if at times it seems to be hidden from us, even if we, we doubt and we question, we know in the depths of our hearts, we know these things about God to be true. And so it guides our troubled spirits to that place where we can finally rest and even rejoice in the assurance that God is loving and good. And of course, we who stand on this side of Calvary have all the more reason to trust in God's unfailing love because we have seen the highest expression of that love in the giving of his son. We have beheld the, the, the torn flesh and the, the wounded side and the, and the blood-stained hands. And so we can say with the Apostle Paul that if God is for us, then who can be against us? 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? And so then, as Paul goes on to say, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And he says, no, in all of these things, in, in the midst of all of these things, through all of these things, not, not uh, after them, not, you know, uh, outside of them, but in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It is uh, the custom of Christians in the East and, and uh also of many Christians in the West, but especially Christians in the East, to pray Psalm 13 before going to bed at night. And, and the reason they do so, one of the reasons they do so, is because woven throughout their prayer, if you didn't catch it, is the threatening presence of an enemy. And so there are really three parties throughout Psalm 13. There's God, there's the, the, the lamenter, the psalmist, and then there's an enemy. And that presence of the enemy is throughout the psalm. Uh, we, we see it, for example, in the first section, how long will my enemy triumph over me, the psalmist asks. And then we see it again in the next one, give light to my eyes or I'll sleep in death, and my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And so for centuries, Christians have used this psalm at nighttime to pray that the enemy and his darkness will not overcome them as they go to bed at night, that, that they will not uh, sleep the sleep of death that they will not be overcome by the darkness of the enemy. And so it's a prayer of kind of God's protection against the enemy as they go to bed at night. And this prayer that has to do with our enemy uh, takes on much deeper significance in light of what Christ has done for us. It was in a garden that the first Adam was conquered by the enemy, allowing sin and evil to come into the world. And it was in a garden that the second Adam battled that same enemy, agonizing in prayer and shedding his first drops of redeeming blood. It was by a tree that the enemy conquered the first Adam and so plunged all of humanity between, beneath the power of darkness. And it was on a tree that the true Adam conquered the enemy and so brought his chosen ones from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And we who have been purchased by his blood now claim the victory that it secured. And we see more fully and more clearly the salvation that Psalm 13 anticipated. And so we can say with the psalmist, my heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. In seasons of distress, may we cry out to God authentically and lament. And may we bring before him boldly our petitions. And may we always land in deep trust, knowing that we belong to the God who is good and who in Christ has conquered the enemy. To God be the glory. Let's bow together. Oh Lord, as we come before your throne this, this morning in a time of silence, response. I pray, O oh Lord, that if we are in or if we know someone who is in a season of distress, a season of pain, and suffering and sorrow and grief, Lord, teach us how to pray. 
Lord, teach us to bring our laments authentically before you. To not be afraid of complaint and not buy into the lie that it's a sign of deficient faith. Give us words, and if we don't have the words, give us groans and outbursts and cries for help to bring our petitions before you. But Lord, in this space of silence this morning, work within us a deepened trust. Show us again, Lord, your unfailing love, your chesed, that we may sing praises to you, knowing and believing and knowing that we know that you have been good to us. Lord, hear our silent prayers of response this morning. Lord God, in our seasons of distress and sorrow and suffering, it is so easy for us, O oh Lord, to feel forgotten by you, forsaken, hidden from your presence. Oh Lord, may we learn in those moments and in those seasons to cry out to you and lament, to not be, to not be afraid to do so, to cry out with the psalmist, how long, O oh Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? And Lord, may we progress from lament into cries of petition, even if they are short and sometimes even inaudible, May we cry to you for help and say, look, answer, give light to my eyes. And Lord, through our prayers of lament and petition, may you lead us again and again to that place of trust where we can say, authentically before your throne, even in the midst of still anguish and sorrow and questions and wonderings, may we say, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation, and I will sing the Lord's praise, for you have been good to me. Lord, in those moments, lead us to the cross where we see most clearly most profoundly, your unfailing love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat>